Welcome to Cyber Synapse. This week, I'm joined by Perry Carpenter, who I am absolutely stoked to be talking to in terms of, um, I'm going to start at the beginning, Perry, in terms of you are, I think you named yourself a, a chief evangelist and strategy officer for No yeah. Before. <laughs> um, but I've, I've, I was introduced to you by um, one of my colleagues and one of the reasons I really, really wanted to talk to you today is, number one, because you've done a book, which is, um, as I said earlier, absolutely wonderful in terms of the, the academic stuff that you've brought to it. So the book is, is called, uh, let me take my glasses off, I don't even need them, uh, Transformational <laughs> Security Awareness. And it's, it's a collection of um, theories about human behaviour. So, you know, um, neuroscience, marketeering. Um, you've also got um, some cognitive stuff in there, some behavioural stuff in there. It's, it's a fantastic resource. Um, and of course, you work for a company called No Before. Um, I don't know if anybody in this country outside of cybersecurity has any idea on who you are. So to begin with, would you like to introduce yourself as to where, where the chief evangelist came from? Yeah, so... I mean, it's it's got a long backstory. So if you're familiar with the term evangelist in general, an evangelist is somebody that goes out and tells you know the good news about whatever. Um, it's normally uh, combined with a more, more of a religious context, but in the tech industry, especially here in the U.S., you hear that term quite a bit. Of you know, Apple is the one that started that, and they had uh, you know really famous evangelism program of getting uh, their you know, dev people involved in writing code for Apple and Guy Kawasaki kind of was the first technical evangelist out there. Um, and that's been adopted by people for the past couple decades of saying, I'm an evangelist for this and for that. And uh, uh, for companies, it's getting to be pretty popular. Um, so I, I use that mostly because I work a lot with the analyst community as well. And I, I came out of that. I was a, an analyst at Gartner Research for quite a while. Uh, covering the the industry that I'm in right now. And um, as somebody who's working with that industry, as somebody who was answering a lot of the public relations questions and the media questions, it made sense to adopt that title. And then the strategy piece came because I have a really multifaceted role at No Before of working with marketing, working with product development, working with mergers and acquisitions, um, and all of the other you know, things that come along with those things. So um, it, it's really more than just communications. It is uh, a lot of that hands-on and uh, I poke my fingers in as many areas as I can within the company until people get annoyed at me. And then I walk away and give them a couple months break. And then I come back. <laughs> and ask the questions actually that I would suspect lead to the outpouring of knowledge that you've got into that book. So one of the things that I would say about the book is, is given that there is, I mean, for, the, for anybody who hasn't read it, it is an absolute must in terms of understanding what, what security means in a world of technology. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to talk mm -hmm. cybersecurity because it's like the words GDPR, it tends to make people's eyes close and this stuff. Oh, yeah, it's, it's an overused term that doesn't mean yeah. anything to yeah. a lot of people. So... In terms of, I mean, the book, as I was just saying, there's so much knowledge that you put into the book. And, and, and for me, there's something about decades and decades of knowledge and experience in, in something that, you know, isn't going to take people an entire year to read. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, here's one, of the, here's one of the things, Perry. How do we get people to become aware of the book so that they can care enough to read it in the first place, which is one yeah. of the slogans. Well, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And I did, um, especially within the first six months of releasing it, I put out a lot of intentionality and in making people aware. I've kind of let off the, the accelerator uh, a little bit since then. But one of the reasons that I saw people try and fail to um, produce books like the one that I did. Um, so there's there's other good security awareness books out there. I mean, oh. Don't get me wrong. I didn't invent anything that other people hasn't you know haven't thought of or put in print before. Um, the thing that I did when I released it, and the reason that 
this book has been way more successful than any other security awareness book is because I practiced in the release of it, the things that I evangelized within the pages of it. Um, I, I engaged the community. I got uh, lots of, of mental buy-in um, beforehand. I, I got lots of social proof along with it. And then I kind of built a marketing campaign that I ran just through social media uh, as we released it. And as you, if you know anything about tech books, when you release a tech book, there is no marketing campaign that the publisher puts behind that. Uh-huh. It is all the author. And I think what if there's any mistake that other authors that have covered this topic have made is that they haven't practiced what they preach when they re- released the book is, is they did the cardinal sin that we all accuse security awareness leaders of, of just assuming that people will come to the information. And we know that that doesn't work. You have to continue to put that in the minds of the people that are out there, find new ways, new channels to get that out. And I was very aggressive about that within the first uh, several months of the release. Yeah. Yes, I'm I'm just learning about this marketeering and and I can't say it's my favorite thing to do at all. It's the idea No, of- you feel a little bit like a jerk every now and then because <laughs> you're pointing at yourself and which is why I took my foot off the accelerator. I felt like I had enough momentum yeah. after that that other people were were um saying good things about it and at that point it's like all right, I don't have to be my own um I don't have to toot my own horn as much. I can just kind of rely on some of the reviews and some of the word of mouth and it's uh it's it's getting out there around the world which is a good mm. thing to see as well i think also i mean for me i noticed that actually you'd interviewed quite a number of people in the book yeah. as well it isn't you know it isn't um you know perry carpenter sitting aloft his um you know pedestal saying look at me in a narcissistic tone right voice. it's actually lots of people giving their approach to why you know why security is so important why people should care and i am going to do that air quote thing around the word it should, should. Yeah. um but there's this idea of um why do we need to care why do we need to be aware what you know this is where i'm kind of going to go with you today which um, sure. something that i prompted before so why do people even need to know about this stuff uh, it depends on what you mean by stuff. So uh, if you're, well, you know, stuff, right. Um, but the, the thing, uh, I think when it comes down to, to the stuff, it's, it's the, the thing that we believe is going to be best for somebody, the thing that is going to reduce risk or increase that person's safety, security, and, um, uh, all of the things that come with that. And the reason that they should care is because of those things that I, I just articulated. It is better for them. It is better for the organization that they work for. It's better for society. It's better for their clients and, and so on. Um, the thing that we have to do, though, is actually make that ramification, the why you should care, be the thing that gets embedded within their mind rather than the you should just do uh, this thing or do not do these other things um, because that's what people aren't going to care about because uh, you're asking them to change their normal mode of behavior and people don't uh, like that. Mm-hmm. Which that actually brings me to, and she says, scanning her mind as she's like, the the example you gave, which I thought was really, really clever actually, was um, the pen rolling off the desk. Yeah. That it becomes such an automatic behavior. And I, I find that, it just so happens that my background is is around, you know, a bit of IT and cybersecurity. Not that I ever did the cybersecurity training or anything, but having been around high level um, corporate companies and, you know, casinos, um, gas stations, as you call them, uh, pe- petrol stations over here, that I was I was really kind of introduced to this area of you really do need to take care of everything that you're doing every step of the way, almost being frisked down to go into right. a casino. Um, and coming from uh, the armed forces, we had something that was, um, and it was literally shoved down our throat. So it wasn't a, here's, here's an awareness campaign. It was a, you will learn this, um, <laughs> something called personal security. So PERSEC, um, as, as we were calling it then, and it still is called today, is something that became a natural way of being. To, I mean, to the point, Perry, that I would even say to my kids, be aware of your surroundings when right. they were little. And it was that ingrained that actually I could have created uh, paranoia in my children, hypervigilance. I could have created this really fearful world, but actually it was because that's how I took the world to be as it was. So 
that where I'm meandering towards at the minute with this this little ditty is how how do we make some of these behaviours um, automatic? So I'm thinking that you can kind of talk about some of the the things that you've written about in the book. Sure. But also, it's how do we how do we even get this into the narrative so that people will want to make it an automatic behaviour? Yeah, I mean that's a a multifaceted question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because some of the how do you make something automatic within a behavior um, is an interesting question because sometimes you can design for that where you push people into that behavior naturally, but that takes a lot of intentionality. Sometimes you're trying to change thoughts and behaviors in a generational way. I mean, one of the other examples that I give is is a use of seatbelts. Um, you know, when I was growing up and probably when you were growing up as well, they weren't mandatory um, and people could decide when and where to wear the seatbelts and, and all of that. Um, now it has become a legal requirement um, and it gets taught at the very youngest age of you have to put your seatbelt on, you have to put your seatbelt on to the point that if you put your car in gear and you have your kids in the back seat and you start to back out of your driveway, your kids start yelling at you because they don't feel safe for you. Uh Um, And you can also get that to where you're so used to the feeling of the seatbelt being on that if it's not on when you start driving, you naturally feel unsafe. Nothing's changed about your condition from before they were legal to after they're legal, but you've built that within your consciousness and within the consciousness of the emerging generation that it is you are not safe if this is not in place. Um, so that takes a, that takes an intentional uh, behavior-based thoughts and minds type of campaign that is multi-generational to change that behavior. And we see that same type of campaign happening with things like smoking awareness and, and mm-hmm. other uh, public health things, like maybe even uh, things like recycling and, and so on. Um, the things that that I would not have thought to separate in my trash. Um, people in the younger generation, if they see you throw mixed trash away, they'll naturally say, you, you shouldn't do that. That should go over here in the, in the recycling bin. Um, and so you can tackle that at a um, in a generational way and come away way better than than we have been before. But if you're trying to do the smaller version of that, then there's, I think, two ways that you do it. One, well, and if we go hearts and minds, that's probably the way that I would break it up. Mm -hmm. Um, One is if I can encode something within the way that somebody naturally feels about uh, a behavior, then that's right. Then then I'll do that. So um, that gets into some of the behavior design, behavioral economics pieces that I know we can go um, yeah. in yeah. different directions on. Um, but if I can use um, some nudges to push people in the right direction to where they don't even realize that they're making a decision, but I'm I'm weighting the preference in the direction that I want somebody to go. So I'm adding friction to the thing that I don't want them to do. And I'm reducing friction in the thing that I do want them to do. Mm -hmm. So it's just easier for them to make the secure decision or the right decision. And then the other thing is if I can start to tell stories that matter and infuse those stories with the right amount of emotion and the right amount of, of, of character to where I'm not just spinning out facts and figures and logic and policy, but I'm telling the story of um, somebody that they really care about, whether that's them, their kids, their organization, their country, or so on, um, and, and really infusing all of the things that we know about storytelling, production, um, marketing, and, and everything else within that so that they naturally make associations with the positive or negative feelings that we're hoping that they'll have associated with it. Then you're, you're more likely to drive them um, to at least care more about it. Um, but I also talk about a gap between even caring about something and, and accomplishing that thing. So there's, so I, I can know something and not care about something. I can also care about something deeply and still not do the thing because it's sometimes easier based on my own habit um, or my own context to not do the thing. 
Well, I'm just thinking with your example of the seatbelts there. So um, I don't know if you were um, subjected to the plunk click every trip campaign that happened. That's that's what we had in the UK. Yeah, we, um, we had uh, similar campaigns here in the yeah. US. I mean, the campaigns themselves have gone from, you know, showing um, crash test dummies being thrown around cars. Um, I'm thinking of the, as, as you were talking, I was like, yes. And there was the broken eggs for the people who cycle on their bikes and don't wear helmets. Right that quite often there has to be this this level of needing to care but also i'm i'm just thinking about the seatbelts i've seen so many people that will put a seatbelt on to avoid a fine rather than doing it for the safety mm-hmm. so it's that we've got lots of different ways of yeah different levers there mm-hmm. you know there's there's another interesting campaign because it's really hard um in public health to get people to make healthy decisions for themselves well, and, aren't, we in a, aren't we in a time that exacerbates yeah. that? Yeah, well, and, and we've seen that. We've definitely seen that um, because everybody believes that they're going to be the exception to the rule uh-huh. um, or that the, I mean, we could we could get into people, you know, not believing the science or not believing the, the other things. But yeah. um, let, let's let's say they, they fully believe the Surgeon General warning on the pack of, of cigarettes or they fully believe what the national scientists are saying about about the threat. Um, they still believe they're going to be the exception a lot of times. And what we've seen with some of the more effective health awareness campaigns uh, with like smoking is that people will not choose or people won't choose to stop smoking for their own health. Generally, what they will choose to stop smoking for is the health of their family sometimes But even more effective than that has been a campaign that that shows what secondhand smoke does to the lungs of their pets. <laughs> it's it's real. You've got to find the pain point. <laughs> yeah, you have to find the the point that they really care about, and and I think even maybe the reason that that hit home so much more is because as people get older, sometimes they're they're widowed or they're widowers, and the only companion they have is their pet, and they see that that pet is you know, a very defenseless innocent. And if my actions are harming this defenseless innocent, then it naturally brings that home. And these people, um, especially as they're up in years, have experienced multiple levels of loss. And they don't want to contribute to that one more level of loss that they they then feel responsible for. And they have a whole, uh, you know, another gap that they have to fill somehow. Well, I'm thinking there that's leaning towards, and I know I can talk to you a little bit about theories and so on, that's leaning towards kind of the locus of control that there's there's something about my my behaviour externalises onto something else. I'll take responsibility for it. And I'm I'm thinking here of reading um, Alan Carr's book on stopping smoking. And he gave an example of, um, I think it was a, a war veteran who was in hospital who was smoking, you know, nearly 100 fags a day, And what was happening at the end of it is he was getting, you know, um, his septicemia was moving around his body and it meant that bits and pieces were being kind of chopped off at a rate where it would be the the toes, the foot. that, And it still didn't stop him smoking. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, I work a lot with um, people in therapy, so I see addictions of all sorts. And yeah, those narratives are really, really common. And it's really interesting how people very rarely look at themselves as the that conduit in which to do and make the changes. So I'm, I'm thinking about really this idea of, and I will when we when we get onto prompts in terms of um, helping people change their behaviour, I'll come back to the seatbelt analogy because mm-hmm. I had one I had one there when you were talking about that. Um, how how do we actually create a campaign without terrifying people? So one of the things I often see in the cybersecurity industry and have been guilty of myself in terms of mm-hmm. educating around uh, cyber trauma, because that's the thing that I deal with. How do we, how do we create a story that's about technology that doesn't come from, let me say the, the uh, maybe the Mary Aitken's perspective of CSI cyber that, you know, right. Um, that basically says, you know, whatever it is you need to do in terms of, um, you know, scaring people. But how do we how do we get the message about what can go wrong? What yeah? What pain point are we looking at? Do you think? Yeah, I think that that's a that's an interesting thing to try to solve for, right? Because 
we know that emotion has to be a component of this. People, you know, if people just see the information, they're not going to, to care naturally. They have to have that land home in some way. Yeah. Um, you know, as we were talking about seatbelts and public health and everything else, I'm reminded of the fact that most people don't buy alarms for their house until they've been broken into them. You know, their, their own home has been broken into or yeah. a neighbor has been broken into or a family member has been broken into. Mm-hmm. So at some point it has to it has to land and feel real. Now, the, the good thing about storytelling is that storytelling, um, when you tell a good story, it lights up regions of the brain um, as if you are actually experiencing that thing itself. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to say and point your finger and, and wag your finger in somebody's face and saying, you are going to have a really bad time if you do this or don't do this. What you can do is you can deflect that and tell you know tell stories uh, in through your marketing campaigns, through materials that you deliver, or just through simple presentations, uh, and talk about the positive and negative effects of different things that people have done. Mm-hmm. And once you invoke storytelling, then people's minds will naturally put themselves in that place. But you're not doing it in such a pejorative way that people feel like you're assaulting them with fear, uncertainty, and doubt, especially if you employ really good story techniques like tension and release. So you give people the natural, you've got your curve that you're following of of emotional response and you go, you dip into this negative area where people feel lost or they feel fear or they feel pain, but then you release that with a laugh or or some lighthearted thing or bring it back to stasis so that people aren't left in that dark place. And I think that's the the thing that we tend to do is we tend to say, all of this terrible stuff is going to happen. And yeah, go deal with that. (laughs) Yes. Now, (laughs) the reason I'm I'm going along with this, A, because I'm empathizing in exactly what you're saying here. Um, So in terms of when when I deliver my cyber trauma training, I'm not talking about anything that really has a positive outcome, you know, so... Mm -hmm. I have to be very careful when I'm talking to my, let's call them an audience, that what I'm doing is physiologically exactly what you're talking about there is, is yes, I use a lot of humour. You know, there are little anecdotes in there basically to bring people back into their um, homeostatic balance. And I always advise not that it's a great piece of advice considering I'm a, a functional health practitioner. I tell them to get a little bag of Haribo. And I say, you know, make sure you've got some sugar in you, because actually, as your energy levels dip, you're going to need a little bit of a spike. Um, Right. Not the best healthy advice out there. But at the same time, I know that when I deliver that particular topic, it's 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 a a difficult topic at the best of times. Yeah. Some Um, topics just by their own nature are are triggering. And that's yes. Yeah. That's the thing we have to be aware of when we deliver any kind of training. If we Mm. talk about. um virtually anything there can be a trigger for somebody based on the either the topic that we're talking about or the way that we present it yeah and so we have to give people in every context that we can some some emotional um release where where we recognize the fact that we can be uh, taking somebody into a dark place or an uncomfortable place we have to have to somehow give them a, a, an escape hatch to that yeah so, easier said than done. Uh, right. Yes. And I'm thinking, actually, this is what this is what I noticed in terms of the message that certainly certainly was being driven in your book is, you know, educate your. Um, so I know that the book's been written more and it seems to fit more with businesses rather than, you know, the singular practitioner. And we were I will ask you right. about just a moment. But there is this idea of educate your staff, create a space where you're not shaming them. So one right. of the techniques that I know many cybersecurity professionals use is, is uh, simulated phishing. And then what actually happens at the end of it is, you know, then then you give the message about this could have been rather than, oh, my God, I can't believe you pressed on the button and, you know, right. exactly. sapped away all of the business's finances and, you know, exposed everybody's data. So my question would be, how do we or how do you in terms of thinking here see getting the message out to the singular practitioners? So right now, because of uh, lockdown, especially in the United Kingdom, lots of people are still working from home where I don't necessarily believe 
and and I know so that people are in that space where they're taking the same kind of precautions mm-hmm. or they're they're considering the internet in in a um in a way that they feel safe in their own homes and therefore forget to do some of those protocols. And and how do we get people to think about security when they're on their own or as singular practitioners? Yeah, so the only way that I think you can do that effectively is through some type of community aspect. So if, if people are not getting direction from above in some way, that they're uh-huh. listening to, then the only way that you can do it from is from, from, you know, underneath, which would be their clientele asking for it. And they're probably not thinking of that in that perspective um, or raising awareness through the community. You have to create a community norm. So you're always thinking about what are the, what are the levers or social pressures that I can, that I can put into play in some way. Yeah. Um, and so at that point it is, how do you establish the, the cultural norm that you're going for at a community level. And the way that I think about that, um, way easier said than done, uh, really, it's something really accomplishable within a, an organization, within a, a, a company, mm-hmm. a little bit harder for floating therapists that are all independent contractors, essentially. Um, but when you think about society in general, the reason that we have societies or, or um, cultures that, that flock together in this you know, tribal type of way is that there is an established social norm that's called acceptable. Um, actually, whenever we have somebody that deviates from that, we call them antisocial. Uh, um, and so what you have to start to do is you have to, to build enough social pressures so that the acceptable form of behavior is to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. And we, we have um, actually two names for people that are, are uh, uh, that are outside of the social norm. Um, we have people that we idolize because they're doing things that are, are good or better or society believes that they should incorporate in in some way. Or we have people that we demonize or ostracize that are on the other side of that. And yeah. what we have to get um, is that you find ways to take the people that should be the, the shining example and start to build the cultural norm around that. And then people that are naturally not doing the thing that they should do, the thing that are, that will um, ultimately be the best for the society. Um, those start to be pushed into that, you know, more demonized or ostracized type of camp. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, those are, are again. It brings me back to that word evangelist. That's that because they're on the uh, you know pushing pushing the narrative and the people who are often uh, revered in terms right. of well, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's how do you push the the narrative? Because uh, society and culture, the the reason pockets of culture exist is for mutual protection and long term sustainability. Mm. And so, if you can start to make the the, the group that you run in, which is, you know, this collective of therapists, realize that it's not good for the group security, safety, uh, you know, the, the furtherance of the collective. Uh, if it's not good for them to not make these t- types of decisions that are ultimately good for their, their clients, um, well, well, then you start to naturally push in the direction. You're starting to say now the acceptable norm is to uh, to adopt these behaviors that maybe you haven't adopted in the past. Yeah, yeah. and I, for me, I see a message of um, people that come to us for therapy. So whether we're, you know, whether we're an aromatherapist, physiotherapist or, or psychotherapist, people come to us with an assumption that we are a trusted other, that we can provide them with a safe space. And of course, right. What, what I've picked up in terms of the, the common themes that, that happened were many people didn't want to be an online therapist. So uh, a couple of years ago, I delivered um, some training and said, you know, the future's coming, technology's changing. And somebody said, I will always be a face-to-face therapist. And when lockdown happened and we all went into lockdown, I kind of thought, I wonder how that woman's doing in, in today's society, because suddenly yeah. her hand was forced. Um and what, what's happened is, the um, I'm just thinking about the journal article that I've done, that the, the lack of training that we were given pre-COVID was because 
my profession hadn't even assumed there was no business contingency plan there was no you know um forward thinking in terms of what would we do if and of course because people have made it what i call um uh, everyday assumptions i use whatsapp with my i don't know my family my friends so i can use it with clients i talk right. to you know i talk to my friends on zoom so i can use zoom and what's what's currently happening is I know that training organisations are saying we need to teach you how to effectively do, in inverted commas, therapy online. And of course, the return argument at the minute is, well, I've been doing it for a year. Why do I need the training? Uh, yeah. So yeah. I can see the same for security. Well, there's, um, I think, a responsibility uh, of course, there's there's responsibility on on both parts. One is if you are intentionally serving a a client base, then you should know what the um, what the Hippocratic oath is for that client base. It's it's not just the health of that client, but it's it's all the other things that go along with that, which would be um, kind of you know things around identity theft, around data security, around the perception of privacy and so on. So that has to be incorporated within the way that people perceive the Hippocratic Oath. But the other thing that comes into that is that when people will not take care of themselves, um, and even though that, that could be the therapist community at this, at this point with the way that they provide some services, um, there's a natural market gap that emerges in two ways. One is there's a gap that emerges for products that will naturally offer the right amount of safety and security that therapists should adopt mm -hmm. and should be um, reasonably priced for therapists. Um, but then the other one is a market gap that is um, spawned by both the the community and kind of that you know ostracized or or, or idolized type of, of mindset that I talked about before, um, but with the community itself, and then with also within some of the people that they're serving, um, there will naturally be people that that are looking for assurances of the fact that their data is is preserved well, or the fact that they have. The, the right level of privacy and they'll naturally gravitate towards therapists that are, are showing that they provide that. I, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. thinking of the word integrity here. So when, when, right. um, when I'm teaching, one of the things I, I uh, attempt to communicate is uh, basically that Hippocratic oath in terms of actually you, you have a duty of care to your client and in the real world, you say to them, I will offer you a safe space and yada 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 and the person comes in now this I've managed to get into the journal and I, it, the reason I got it into the journal is because I think it's so imperative to make the distinction in my psychotherapy office I ask people to just be aware of the fact that if they bring their phone in that there's issues with that and I, I've got a contract yeah. and I talk to them about you know privacy you can't record the session I won't record the session um, make sure that your phone is actually turned off because there's a good chance if you say the word seriously that Siri will think that you're talking <laughs> to uh, you know all of this kind of conversation but I know fairly fairly securely within myself there are no listening devices in the walls nobody is sat in the room with us it is me and the client and the four walls. Right. And yet when I go online, I know that there are certain things I need to do to recreate that same level of confidentiality, safety, security, privacy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the bit that I, I find my, my profession struggles with the most is understanding that virtual spaces are not the same as physical spaces because they, they, they don't, I would say it's like there there isn't this understanding about what privacy actually means, how identity theft occurs, what phishing attacks are, why they would even need to consider not being connected to the internet when they're doing certain things with certain files, um, mm -hmm. you know, data in transit, data uh, in storage. It, it's it's really quite yeah. too much for a lot of them. It it really is, and I think you used the right word there. It's it's too much and. Yeah. One of the things that that I talk about in the book and then I, I talk about with people that are trying to do security awareness within organizations is sometimes you get to a point where you cannot reasonably expect a non-professional, you know, non-security professional to think about or do certain things. 
Um, and at that point, you have to build safe structures around those people. You have to to build secure tools that will naturally enable the behavior that you're you're wanting um, in a way that is virtually frictionless to them, to where they don't try to go around it. Because right now, I can imagine there's probably some very good, secure um, virtual therapy rooms that are out there that there is friction to adoption, either because of cost or usability. Um, and if, e- if either or both of those, yeah. So if, if, it's, if, if cost is not the prohibitive thing, and it's only you know ten to fifty bucks a month or something like that, and it's easy to to do. So that's not a barrier. So my my and we could go to the fog model with this, right? Um, because if the if yes, the please. ability yeah. piece is taken away, then um, then you start to look at all right, what's the what's the factor that's stopping this? Is it that just that they don't want to? That there's a motivation problem, or is there another ability problem that we have to to cross over? So the the finances aren't a piece, but maybe there's a piece of software that has to be installed, or that software is clunky and people don't like it. People just naturally use Zoom more, and so they I've got to you know convert them to another platform now. So how do we deal with all of that? Um, in in an effective way. And those start to be the things that you're trying to solve for at that point. Okay. So I shall definitely throw it back at you in terms of research. And this is my experience yeah. over the past few years. First of all, there is there is a motivation in terms of cost issue. So um, I often refer people to um, an email service that I use, mainly because it's forensically secure, it's easy to use, and it just requires an add-on. So yeah. in terms of uh, Outlook or Gmail or whatever, it's it's a little add-on. It's not a whole complicated system that you have to download. And the person here in the UK will take them through the process. Right. What we've actually found in conversations, uh, so conversations I've had post-trainings, uh, conversations I've had with the organisation, people are saying, can I not just have it for free? Mm. So what, what we do find is that if it comes to email, um, even even things like I will advise people, you know, get a really good, I don't know, antivirus software program. Um, and then I get asked, what do you use, Kat? So I'll give them the name of what I use and they go, that's expensive. <laughs> and my response is usually, yeah, well, wait until there's a, you know, there's an issue because that will be much, much more expensive. Right. So I do see that there is this um, resistance to pay out. It's, it's definitely a motivational issue, but also to use tech in a way that that therapists need to it needs to be an easy to use platform like yeah. Zoom. it needs to have a nice ux experience and and so i i find that there's a few steps that still yeah, you have here. to you have to make the technology just not a barrier at all and mm-hmm. and that's why zoom has become the conferencing platform of choice for every, you know virtually everybody around the world yeah. um, there are other you know, good conferencing platforms out there. Um, I mean, Microsoft Teams gets used a lot. There's a few others, but there's always um, Cisco WebEx. There's also always little components that you either have to download or it's not the expected experience or it doesn't work right with the cameras or something else. And people just go, well, Zoom, you know, is popular because it just works. And from a therapy perspective, you have to have something that just works because you're dealing with people um, that are a lot of the times not at their their best points of their life. They're stressed out. They don't yeah. need one more thing that they have to figure out. Otherwise, they'll just say, "Screw it, I'm going to you know, do without it." Yes. Um, yeah. So then, as a as a therapist, I think the other thing that you you have to think about is um, or or get into people's heads um, is that yeah, it's an additional cost, but uh, so is licensing. So it is, you know, the, the other things. And maybe in the, the newer era that we're moving into, maybe having a physical office space that you're renting in town, maybe that's not a necessary thing. And so you take the um, several hundred pounds that you're spending for that every month uh-huh. and you refocus those funds into things that are going to make your business into the most effective business that you can create in whatever the new normal is. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's there's something about 
um, difficulties with technology. So I do find quite often that, that I will get emails from therapists as though I'm back on third line support. You know, my yeah. I don't know. My, I've downloaded this file, Kath. What does it actually mean? How do I? And, and sometimes I'm like, I'm not I'm not working in IT anymore doing this. But I find I will look at something and go, OK, this this is quite easy to use. And, and if you can get people to help you use it, then that that takes away some of those barriers Right. But I think the, the difficulty I have is explaining why, well, not the difficulty I have explaining, but I mean, for the profession, is why those things are necessary. And that takes me back to that Hippocratic Health part that you were talking about. Well, it's yeah. necessary as a duty of care to somebody who is in distress. Yep. And, yeah. you know, more often than not, the thing that I communicate most is to do with emails that, when when a potential client or a new client comes and, and says, uh, hi, Kath, I've just got your number from, what they tend to do is tell me all of the story in the first email. Now, mm-hmm. I can't protect, and I did have this with a big organisation, actually, a marketing, uh, sorry, an advertising agency where all of the therapists were listed. And I said, you take X amount of money from the therapist every single month and you send out an email that's unencrypted. It's uh, there's no protection on it in transit, and they they actually said, "Well, it's it. you should you should tell the people not to do that." Mm. And I said, "I'm sorry. Do I have ESP?" And I send out a message to every potential <laughs> client, telling them, "Just send me an email that says contact or email me back," because at the end of the day, they're using a service that should be, again, there's that air quotes of should be, should be protecting the people that are coming to the platform looking for somebody to help them with their mental distress. Right. And there's there's faults at so many levels with this, Perry, to be perfectly honest, in terms yeah. of um, the platforms that advertise you, the platforms that email you out, the secure platforms that are clunky. I even tried during lockdown to use Wire with a few, th- uh, a few clients. Yeah, it just didn't happen. It was far mm. too complicated for somebody whose nervous system is all over the place and they just want to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, I think that that's the biggest problem there with the, uh-huh. when you're dealing with a vulnerable population, people that are stressed out, people who are, are fearful, they're at their breaking point yeah. to have somebody jump through another hoop is really, really difficult. And yeah. then, so that's why um, secure by design and ease of use are critical for vendors that are trying to serve this community to get right. And because the last thing you have to do, you want to do as a therapist is say, yes, come to me uh, and it's going to be a safe, good experience, but here are the 15 steps that you need to take in order to make this happen. Because they're just going to get, you know, either get frustrated and stop or go to somebody else that's not trying to have the same duty of care. Mm -hmm. I have a a message on some of the platforms that I advertise on. And one of them says you might want to clear your, uh, I don't know, clear your cookies and your cachet. I I know, I know that pretty much number one, people don't read it, but I have a duty of care to inform them. So that's, that's why the message is on uh, these particular platforms, because what that does do is it says to somebody who might be in the right space to read it, I take your data and your privacy very, very seriously. And that, for me, that's the uh, message I want to convey about my integrity and the way that I work. But I'm going to veer off slightly here. How sure. do we how do we educate around? And I'm thinking this is this is one of your expertise areas. How do we educate around phishing? Because I think that's the message and that's the bit that isn't understood. That yes, great, you might have taken all of those steps and you use a platform that's safe. And right. you only communicate with your client maybe on that platform, but you click on a link that says it might be your bank or Amazon or that what that actually, you know, what what it is that we could be helping people understand in terms of, you know, phishing and responsibility of, of jobs as remote workers. Yeah. Well, if you if you work as part of a an organization, then it should be the organization's duty to do frequent simulated phishing tests because ultimately you're trying to train a habit there Um, because all of us, we're all emotional creatures. And in the height of that emotion, we will make knee jerk. It's like, you know, catching the pen that's about to roll off the end of your desk. And as you do that, you accidentally slap, you know, slap your coffee cup away and you cause a big mess. Um, So we have to be, um, 
we have to be conditioned to the fact that we will make those knee-jerk decisions when somebody pulls an emotional level lever of authority or or fear within an email or urgency or something else, and we're very likely to go ahead and click that link. So the only way to to train yourself out of that is to to be put in that situation over and over and over again. Um, and so that's hard to do for people that are their own individual practitioners, unless you, um, you know, maybe set yourself up with a service like that or, or tell you know, friends and coworkers to, or, or people within your community to try to trick you every now and then. I want to be on my toes. Go ahead and trick me. Um, so, so that's a little bit harder if you're your own floating island. But if you work as part of a, a collective, then the collective can sign up for a service like that and uh, test all of those people. And here's, here's the thing with that, though, is I have seen people try to send out one test a year or one test every you know, quarter. And I don't think that that's effective at all. I think if you only do it once a year or once a quarter, you only realize how pathetic you are. It's the same as if you only exercise once a year or once every three months, you'll only realize how out of shape you are. Um, and that's the only value you get. But if you do it frequently, if you do it as often as possible, then you start to build up real, uh, you know, a, a nice healthy habit. You start to build real um, muscle tone here. We're talking about the, the you know, the muscle reflexes of mm -hmm. uh, avoiding the fish and you start to move in a more positive direction. Well, I mean, that brings me into the neuroscience of uh, neuroplastic changes, actually, that, that, yeah. that is, that is, it is frequency, it is timing. And I'm thinking about another one of the concepts that you discuss in the book, which is that variable uh, reward ratio. Yeah. So, you know, being able, being able to, number one, feel like you've beat the meanies. That's, that's mm -hmm. how I always talk about it is uh, uh, beat the meanies that. I think as part of, um, so I'm part of one membership body. And as I, I was saying to you uh, before we started, there's so many different membership bodies that I think it's the membership body's duty of care to, to, to actually do that, whether yeah. it's being in a company, but actually sending, you know, sending those emails to to test the, the therapists to say, you know, this could happen at any time. And what we're aware of is this could put you and your client. So it's never just about the client. It's always put you and your client exactly. at risk. Well, and to do it in a way that doesn't, um, it, because this is another pitfall that I've seen people fall into is if you don't tell people why you're doing that kind of testing, then they assume that you're out there to get them in some way <laughs> and you don't want that or your or your IT staff is there just making fun of them um, and that's the last thing that you want especially in these hyper stress times and so you do have to say this is part of duty of care this is part of doing the right thing um, we're not out there trying to, to trick you or to laugh at you we're trying to make you stronger so that you are there for your clients in the way that you need to be there yeah. um, and that's that's key actually when the pandemic started and lockdown started and we we knew that uh that cyber criminals were going to be taking advantage of that like crazy mm. one of the things that i did is uh, i got together with a, a voice actor that i knew could pull off the right tone um, and just did a, a really quick video over the weekend um, with frankly it was just stock imagery and it's stock music um, but we wanted to put out something really quick that had the right tone and um, he, he did it it was you know the video just started off with a click sound and uh, just has text going across and then fades into some other nice imagery but it just says you know oops you clicked you know, we get it. Things are really, really hard right now. You're stressed out. The world is crazy. You don't know what normal looks like, but cyber criminals are taking advantage of this. Yeah. Uh, you're safe. The organization is safe. Um, but here's what we need to be looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did say that as we went into lockdown, the first the first kind of thought that went through my head is both cyber criminals and um, perpetrators of crimes against children must have been rubbing their hands together with glee. Oh, yeah. It must have been a, oh, this is like Christmas all at once. And, and of course, you know, um, the, the profession that I'm with may not have even understood why that might have been an issue. And of course, I'm now going off on a slight You would, you would hope that therapists would, you know, <laughs> they, they understand. Um, if you work with victims at all, you should understand the mindset and the drives of a predator. 
Um, uh, and I, I think that that may be that may be one of the key ways that you can start to get this across to your community. Yeah. Is saying if you're advocating for people who have been victimized, then you need to understand the mindset and the drives of a victimizer, whether that's digital or whether that's physical, so that you can best protect your you know, the people that are trusting you with their care. Yeah, funnily enough, that's one of the things that I do in my uh, training. Um, now, it isn't it isn't as I would love to be able to do the the fancy one that I think is talked about in the book, and I can't remember if it was you or another professional about setting up a, a whole environment where people can go and you know play the criminal, go and set up yeah. a phishing attack, and so on. Now, I have to do it in a slightly different way in terms of asking them to talk amongst themselves as a group and, and think about it. Right. But by thinking like a perpetrator, whether it's a, a cyber criminal or, or, you know, somebody that's going to harm your client, you, you can start to understand what it is these people are actually exactly. aiming to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the security world, we just call that threat modeling, right? Is, yeah. is you get out there and you, you model the threats and you put people in the shoes of the attacker. Um, and I think that that's something that, People actually, when you give them the space to do it, they enjoy it because all of us like to be a little bit evil now and then. Yeah. And it gives people a safe, um, ethically um, positive way of, of kind of playing with that evil side of themselves. Mm. Most, most certainly. And I think sometimes that's the only way. And I'm just thinking here, actually, about the training that I received is, you, you would get training about this is what it's like to uh, work with a client who's bullied. This is what it's like to work with an addict. This is what it's like to work with. Yeah. And we, we'd get these labels and then we'd get the training about how to work with them. And one of the things I've noticed right the way across the board is that there are varying levels of understanding about what these issues are, but also I don't know whether, and, and this comes to something called uh, mirror neurons and, and empathic uh, pathways through the brain, that you have to be able to imagine what it's like for that person. This is going to your theory of mind perspective. Right. Um, so, you know, this is this is around um, Piaget's stuff in terms of children when they first begin to develop it. I, I like to actually get people to put themselves into the shoes of the victim, of the cyber bully, of yeah. the child who's been sexually groomed that that gives you a better understanding than me pointing the finger and saying, you know, this is what it's like, because actually you, you have to get a sensation of what it's like. Right. And and I think this is why, this is why I was so enamored with your book. And I'm hoping that, you know, people within your profession really get to grips with the theories that are in there. I know that you talk to a lot of, a lot of um, deep psychological theories all the way through the book. And um, for me, I was, very, very pleased because I was like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. So I know what you're talking about. And I could listen. <laughs> yeah, all that's old hat for, for people that have lived in that space for a while. But the good thing is that uh, most of the cybersecurity, well, good and bad thing, is that most of those within the cybersecurity profession have are being exposed to those for the first time now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're starting to see that, oh, wait, you know, a lot of this has been, you know, these problems that we're trying to, to deal with they've been being dealt with by other professions for a long time. And we don't have to go invent a whole new discipline to start to think about how to combat these things. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's for me, I was actually quite excited to be going through the book going, thank God somebody's talking about this stuff. This is, as, yeah. as I've said so many times, uh, especially if I do speak at cybersecurity events, I, I, I notice when I'm talking, it's like I'm talking a language I know, I understand it's, it's embodied it. And then I see the fa the faces in the audience and they're all like, oh, really? Oh, I didn't know people did. It becomes quite an exciting place in it terms does, of yeah. actually you can work with people in a different way to that rote, um, what is it, rote, rote, remote kind of regurgitate model. Mm. So, I mean, for me, the book, the book was just, it was absolutely outstanding. As I said to you, it was just so nice oh, to read a book. You that had so many theories in it. And of course, people that I do recognize and respect in terms of uh, models, I don't necessarily subscribe to the, the behavioral model. Um, mm -hmm. in terms of, I do like BJ Fogg, but at the same time, he also leans in terms of, he forgets that humans are actually humans and treats them very much like pigeons, uh, a bit like BF Skinner did. So there's, there's kind of lots and lots of things in there that um, I think would be really 
important for people to be able to understand. I think it would do brilliantly in my sector in terms of, you know, yeah. people being able to understand why we need to do the things, even though it does talk to the, the bigger corporations. Yeah. I think well, there's... Uh, I, I think um, on on the topic of models, um, I, I think that it is it's useful to use virtually anybody's model in the behavior space. So when you think about fog, you think about motivation, um, somebody's ability to do something, and then what's the what's the uh, the prompt to do that behavior. So it is a little bit um, formulaic in the way, uh, and I think that there's there's a lot of misunderstanding about how to apply that model out there. But there's another good way of thinking about it that I think is super accessible for people that's outside of BJ Fogg's um, line of, of, of using it. Um, there's a guy named Matt Wallert, who was a behavior designer for Microsoft and for a couple companies within the healthcare space. And he wrote a book called, um, oh, what is it? I've got it on my shelf. Start at the End. Um, and what he talks about is uh, that within, within a single sheet of paper, you could basically build a behavior model um, because all you have to think about is promoting pressures or inhibiting pressures. So how much friction are you going to create or how much friction can you reduce? And sometimes you can get the behavior you want, not by just stacking up a whole bunch of promoting pressures, you know, things that would affect um, motivation or ability, make them stronger or give them more, you know, uh, gusto in, in why they want to do it. Maybe sometimes it's just removing an inhibiting pressure, you know, make it easier. Yes. And, and that is exactly how the pharmacology um, world works. It's how the brain works. It's how, do you know what I mean? It's like you could, you could do that in neuroscience. You could do it in um, attachment behavior because uh, essentially we are, we are, just a collection of cells that like to do one of two things either move towards which is that kind of activation and yeah. or we move away so you've got inhibition versus um excitator it depends what paradigm you're in as to what word you use yeah um, and i was going to come back to the prompts because i did say I'd do that i think one of the things i think that would be really helpful and i haven't seen this yet which is why i was kind of okay to come back to this in terms of the seatbelt prompt we have the, as, as you talked about, feeling safe, wanting to put it on. It becomes an automatic behaviour. But boy, does your car let you know if you haven't plugged your seatbelt in. That prompt is, and it's almost shaming, um, you know, yeah. that bing, bing, bing. <laughs> oh, it's on. definitely annoying if it's not shaming. Right? <laughs> that's that's yeah. what they're they're going for is, is how can I make this such a um, such a thing that cannot be ignored that you will deal with it. And I and people can still go around that, right? They can they can buckle the seatbelt behind them yeah. um, and still get out of it. But they're having to to take an action uh, still to do that. They cannot just ignore it. And I think that that's the key thing that the automotive industry added. Um, you know, whether people love it or hate it, it's it's effective in getting somebody to do a behavior, not just ignore something. Yeah. So... Before we come to the end, is there now I'm I'm not a great believer in tech solves all human behavior problems, but right. is there is there a system like I don't know, is there a system that people could use or we could even get integrated into? So I'm thinking here a bigger picture, and maybe yep. this might be something for you to put out to your your sector in terms of uh just thinking here. To, to create those prompts for people, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to say, those singular practitioners, is there a way we could do that? Because I know we get Outlook reminders, calendar reminders, um, appointment reminders, whatever it is. Yeah. Why haven't we got something that really helps the at-home practitioner? Why haven't we got something that that the seatbelt bing, bing, bing noise? That's, that's a great question. Um, and I think there's a few things that come into that because I know when I was at Gartner um, and people would say, hey, I've got a great antivirus product. Um, it works well. It solved problems at all of these companies. I'm going to sell it to consumers. Mm -hmm. And we'd always say, it's a bad idea. People won't pay for security for themselves because we've seen that yeah. uh, over and over and over again. People expect that to be bundled in with an already given service. And so the, the only way to get prompts to work 
Um, actually, there's a few things that we have to, to wrestle with when it comes to prompts. But number one is get the prompt bundled into a service that's already there in some way yeah. or something to where they don't even have to think about it. So the prompt isn't needed. Um, but if there's an action that somebody has to take, yeah, go ahead and prompt. But then you have to solve for prompt fatigue, which is the fact that I get prompted all day long from app notifications, text messages, Outlook reminders, and everything else. And I swap those things away without reading them all the time now. So yes. how do I change it up so that it's not <laughs> psychologically invisible anymore? Yeah. And that's the next piece to solve for. So number one is, um, uh, is bundle the functionality in so that you don't even have to prompt. If you need somebody to jump over a behavioral hurdle, yeah, go ahead and prompt, but do it in a way that's not invisible yet <laughs> because it will be invisible later. And then so find a way to shake it up enough to where you're prompting multiple ways through multiple channels and multiple timings, different using different sound cues or something else such that it's always finding a way to break the pattern. Mm -hmm. Pattern interrupts are going to be the, the, the way to deal with this. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the issues that we've got at the minute, isn't it, in terms of these notifications. And now we've been now we've been told um, and I disagree with this particular program in, in a lot of what it says, but we've we've been told that those things were created to manipulate us. So now mm -hmm. people will actually have a resentment against the notifications. So I think whilst the Social Dilemma um, documentary tried to educate what it actually did was it layered in. Um, another form of behavior without recognizing and this is one of the things about the whole the whole scenario of the big tech organization setting up something and saying actually we we manipulated you all along with these notifications right. is now there's a lot of people going right so notifications are there to manipulate me not to pay attention to because they're important so i think yeah. we're, we're in a very delicate place at the moment about how we how we even do this yeah, well, so there's there's a couple of different forms of notifications that we see. Some some which we know are intentionally manipulative, right? Because you see some but some apps that are just grabbing your attention because they're trying to grab your attention to to get you to use the app in some way or interact with it. Go ahead and get me my ad revenue or or eyes on screen time. Um, but if we can get notifications that are context aware context dependent, you know, it knows the person is about to do this thing um, or is about to engage in this type of behavior and I'm going to prompt them or issue a notification in a way that's nurturing, then you're starting to accomplish something. Mm. So, um, you know, behavior aware, context aware, device aware, that's the way that it has to start going. Uh, so that you start to then rely on that notification slightly differently than you do on the other types of notifications that you're getting. Mm. I do see this absolutely mirrors where I'm coming from in terms of the education around technology and so on and so forth. I think we need to start bottom up with the next generation in terms right. of they will be so tech savvy, so tech, you know, so aware. Actually, they will care by the time they get to, um, you know, high school and they're using some of the devices. And at the moment, I think the other the other way that you're talking about this kind of top down is that that's the one that takes a lot longer to implement. Yeah, and, and yeah it definitely takes a lot longer to implement, and you're you're pushing against the psychological resistance of a lot of it. Yes, yeah, I th oh, I'm trying to think about who it was that actually said this about try try not to fight against human behavior because it's a, it's a wall you cannot push over so that, that something like that that I've read. Yeah. yeah, well, I I have that built into um, a little bit in the way that I talk about the three realities of security awareness. So I've got you know number one is just because I'm aware doesn't mean that I care. Number two is if we try to work against human nature, we will fail. And then number three is what our employees do is way more important than what they know. So you just, you, you encapsulated that number uh, two piece of that in there. Uh, yes. And, and when, well, the thing is, is when I was reading your book, it was full of those nuggets and I was like, yes, it was just so <laughs> nice to see it written in, a, in actually in a sector that I hadn't seen it before, because I think when we first started talking, this is what I noticed is the two domains that I've come from, never the twain have met before right. and and your book kind of stopped me feeling so alone actually because I was like somebody else is talking the same kind of stuff I'm talking That's and lives in and lives in that sector so I'm not all by myself 
That's great. Yeah, I used to tell people um, back when I was at Gartner and I would do policy reviews or talk to CISOs about the frustrations that they were having. I'd say all the time, if there is a gap between your policy expectation and your behavioral reality, it's probably because your policy doesn't expect humans uh, to be part (laughs) of the equation. Um, and, And so it's written in a way or delivered in a way or has expectations in some way that just don't align with natural human behavior. Yeah. And, and I suspect that is that is the most, well, we, uh, we know it is. It's the most important factor, isn't it? It's, it's human beings. Yeah. You know, that, oh, what was the what was the phrase that, that the IT departments used to use is uh, that the user was the problem. It, oh, yeah. it sat at the keyboard. Um, and obviously it was it was again, I find that that's the IT department and um, my industry is in terms of they, they don't understand each other's language. And I worked at an organisation where there used to be paper folders and it would be, you know, the intake form, this form, that form, the other form. And the system the system was updated by some IT people and the therapists could not navigate it. And, and it was a really interesting moment to sit there and go, I can see what the IT department have done and they've done it brilliantly and logically. Mm. They just haven't understood the users the right. way that people think in this profession. And of course, they wanted to put things with links and backlinks in. And, and, and of course, people didn't understand that kind of technology and why 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 would you need to click on this one here? And why didn't it save on this? And why did I have to copy it twice here? And right. you know, it just created such a difficulty for the first six months while people got used to the platform. And even then people use the platform in a very bare minimum way it was you know well I'll use this form but I don't know how to get to those other ones so Mm -hmm. I did spend six months pretty much over people's shoulders going okay now you've clicked on that now click on that and then when you've clicked on that that will put it into that folder for you and I used to sit with a piece (laughs) of paper showing them how it actually worked yeah yeah, that's a that that's a process that's fundamentally broken at that point (laughs) yeah well well I did say we we would go for about this long, Perry. So I just want to thank you so much for your time and your insight and for the book, for the book. Um, And of course, is there, I mean, is there anything that you would want to add on in terms of security awareness, um, anything? Um, uh, I'll I'll just say something that I've been saying uh, in a couple of presentations lately. Um, and I think fits in well with your domain, is that if as a society we're going to take on anything within our next generation, um, we, we have to take on the, the awareness of the fact that we are subject to cognitive bias and we have to start building in processes, uh, technologies, conversations, and and so much more that helps us to solve for that um, because all we have to do is look at the world over the past few years and we see where cognitive bias that's unfettered or that is encouraged gets us and that's what social engineers take advantage of in the cybersecurity space that's what um, everybody uses to our own detriment i'd say it's not just the cybersecurity; it's it's nation states it's um politicians it's everybody else um anybody will try to apply to appeal to a cognitive bias in order to get their own way across and it's frankly tearing us apart and so that's where i think society needs to place some focus right now and from a technology perspective from a security perspective and just from a a conversation perspective we need to spend some intentional time there amen to that that was a wonderful wonderful ending so Uh, thank uh, you so much thank you so much for your time perry all right thank you i really appreciate you having me podcast was edited by Rory Kavanagh, an audio enthusiast and music producer.